You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. In October and November of 1847, Herman Melville was working on a novel. Living in New York, the author would eat breakfast at 8 in the morning before taking a walk in Lower Manhattan. Upon returning home, he would sit at his desk to write for the rest of the morning and early afternoon. After lunch around noon and dinner around four, he would go back out into the city to visit reading rooms and bookstores. In the evening, he would talk with his wife until they went to sleep. This routine is markedly more boring than the grand narratives, tortured genius, and philosophical explorations that populated Herman's literary works, but this repetitive routine made that writing a possibility. And similarly, the fact that we even know these details about an author's life relies on a whole host of conditions that we often forget to value. So, how do we know these details of Herman Melville's life? Melville only kept a journal when traveling, and he destroyed nearly all of his correspondence. It seems like we would know next to nothing about his life if Melville had lived it alone. However, our ability to reconstruct the author's life through documents is made possible by some of the same people who cooked his food, cleaned his home, and kept him company while he was writing. The above account of Melville's composition of his third novel, Marty, comes from a letter the author's wife, Elizabeth Shaw Melville, wrote to her stepmother on December 23, 1847. Skimming books on Melville, readers will quickly realize that much of the documentary basis of Herman Melville's life was preserved by Elizabeth and her female relatives, including her sisters-in-law, daughters, and granddaughters. A considerable amount of the documentary labor that Elizabeth expended sits plainly in archival records where, nonetheless, Melville scholars rarely find her. Over the next half hour, we want to understand how someone could be so instrumental to an author's life, work, and scholarly study while also being considered beside the point. Hi, I'm Jordan Stein. I teach in the English department at Fordham University. And I'm Adam Fales. I'm a PhD student at the University of Chicago. In 2019, we published an essay in Leviathan, a journal of Melville studies, on Elizabeth Shaw Melville, the wife of the author Herman Melville, in the 15 years between his death in 1891 and hers in 1906, Elizabeth championed her husband's early literary career, bringing four of his novels back into print, as well as compiling the biographical information and preserving the manuscripts and documents that scholars would later use to study his career. Elizabeth served as a crucial precursor to scholars who became interested in Herman around the centenary of his birth in 1919. But this same work was variously either forgotten or maligned in the hundred years between 1919 and the Melville Bicentennial this year in 2019. This episode of the C19 podcast narrates the process of discovering Elizabeth. That process set us on a months-long journey back through Melville's papers and archives finding traces of Elizabeth's work that biographers and scholars relied on, but rendered invisible in their pursuit of Herman. Our process of discovery also put us in touch with a handful of Melville scholars who had paid attention to Elizabeth's work, proving that our discovery of Elizabeth was not a discovery after all, and indeed that it only looked like one because the scholars who had paid attention to Elizabeth were women, 
whose contributions were marginalized by a field whose agenda had long been set by male scholars and misogynist assumptions. Finally, our process of discovering Elizabeth is part of a broader process of discovering how many people stand behind the career that one great man gets to have. Our account of Elizabeth Melville becomes an exploration of the crucial but neglected work of the wives of authors, and by extension, a way to begin to rethink author studies in our scholarly field. In telling this story for the podcast, we turn to many of the scholars who have helped us understand what a more inclusive Herman Melville, as well as literary studies, might look like. One of these people is Meredith Farmer, assistant teaching professor at Wake Forest University and associate secretary of the Melville Society. She told us about the way that Herman's life had been constructed by scholars in the past. The standard narrative of Herman Melville's life, in a lot of ways, uh, first of all, centers around Melville, specifically as an author and a brilliant author, which, of course, he is. But it doesn't include some of the other people who were incredibly important to his development as an author in all sorts of interesting ways. Why are those other people incredibly important? One answer has to do with documentation. The time between Herman's last published novel, The Confidence Man, in 1857, and his death in 1891 was more than three decades. And it was nearly another three decades between his death in 1891 and his rediscovery by scholars in 1919. Melville's reputation lived in obscurity for a remarkably long time, well over half a century. And while that period is clearly over, and Melville now towers indisputably among the giants of American literature, the length of Melville's obscurity provided a lot of opportunities for the details of his life to begin to disappear. Sixty years is a long time, almost a lifetime. It's long enough for papers to decay. It's long enough for all the people who knew you in your prime to have died. Melville, as we have said, was rediscovered again in 1919, at which point the details of his work and his life were pieced together by scholars and biographers. But this delay underlines the fact that rescuing the details of someone's life from historical obscurity is far from inevitable. Before 1919, there were few fans who collected Melville's signature and no libraries who bid for his papers. That any of Melville's letters or manuscripts existed at all is partly owing to chance and quite a bit owing to the few people who deliberately preserved Melville's papers. Those people, with great consistency, were the women in his family. The figure we know as Herman Melville turns out to have been constructed, largely by the people who lived alongside and after him, such as Elizabeth Shaw Melville, his wife. To understand this process better, we spoke with Wynne Kelly, senior lecturer at MIT, as well as an author and editor of numerous articles and books on Herman Melville and his family. She told us about some of the people who preserved Herman's correspondence. Well, his sister Augusta, we know, collected family letters, although interestingly not the ones that he wrote, only one from him. Uh, and those were discovered in 1983 and, and for the long period up until then not been uh, recognized. Kelly also described Elizabeth Melville's role in her husband's writing life as an ongoing collaboration. We know so much about it from him and, and, and from the surviving evidence uh, of her hand on the Billy Budd manuscript, for example, which show that uh, she was deeply involved in the um, revisions. She read everything, um, and we know that from her letter to her uh, mother about the Clarell manuscript. 
Uh, and that in the writing of Marnie, they talked about content. Um, uh, and I have to assume that the conversation was ongoing and lifelong. Kelly's scholarship made us interested in the women in the Melville family and the ways they were involved in Herman's writing and publishing ventures. Biographers had pointed out that Herman's mother and sisters lived with him at a number of points following his marriage in his homes in both New York City and outside of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Yet scholars had often been equivocal in their estimations of what the presence of these women meant for Herman's writing. The most heroic effort to unknot those contradictory estimations appeared in the mid-1990s in two Flashpoint publications, an essay called Herman Melville, Wife Beating and the Written Page, and a book called Strike Through the Mask. Their author, Elizabeth Ranker, is a professor at The Ohio State University. So Elizabeth Shaw Melville certainly, and the sisters, all the sisters at various points to greater and lesser extent, were Melville's copyists. Melville had notoriously horrific handwriting. And the Melville women produced the fair copies of Melville's manuscripts that then went to the publisher and the printer. Um, so the fact is that Melville's texts would not exist if it weren't for these women who were his partners. The Melville women quite literally made Herman legible to the rest of the world. While Elizabeth's contributions to her husband's career were not unique among the women in the Melville family, nonetheless, they were exemplary. Herman's sister, Augusta, for example, also invested time copying and collating for Herman's books. But Elizabeth did these things more consistently and for longer than anyone else. Elizabeth also contributed to her husband's career with a hefty amount of emotional work. We spoke to Laurie robertson Laurent, author of the 1996 study, Melville, a Biography, to help get the measure of this aspect of Elizabeth's contributions. She was really instrumental in, uh, in the production of a lot of his books. She was basically uh, his amanuensis, his secretary, his... Uh, the person who propped him up and, and helped him to go through sometimes very arduous and, and, uh, and difficult times with, with the writing itself, with publishers, with critics, etc. And, um, and after he, he, he died, she was the one who took, took over the, um, care and protection and, as much as she could possibly do it, the republication and distribution and awareness of her husband's great books. The contributions of Elizabeth and the other women in the Melville family turn out to be enormous. Not only was Herman's literary career generally supported by his wife, but his very manuscripts were prepared by his wife and sisters. Meanwhile, after Herman's death in 1891, Elizabeth was instrumental in preserving her late husband's reputation, through the careful collecting of documents, including those written by Herman, like the manuscript of Billy Budd, and those about Herman, like the December 23, 1847 letter with which our podcast began. In the year following Melville's death, Elizabeth also worked with his friend E.C. Stedman and his son Arthur Stedman to bring four of Herman's novels back into print. This 1892 edition made Melville's books from the 1850s newly accessible to the generation that came before Melville's scholarly revival in 1919. But, if it's Elizabeth and the other Melville women we have to thank for saving Herman's reputation from the dustbin of history, shouldn't they be getting a lot more credit than they do? 
If their labor is important, and to be clear, we think it is incredibly important, then why didn't we know about it? Why does the standard narrative of Melville studies write these women out? Though women like Elizabeth had worked to preserve Herman's reputation, these women received little attention from scholars of the 1910s and 20s, like Raymond Weaver and Lewis Mumford, figures instrumental in the scholarly Melville revival. Yet if scholars of the Melville revival didn't pay attention to Elizabeth, it turns out they used the documents she preserved and the editions she republished. The scholars relied almost as much on Elizabeth's labors as Herman himself did, but they didn't give her credit. There is no single comprehensive explanation for why these scholars didn't credit Elizabeth, but there is every reason that they could have. One of the earliest and most central figures in the Melville revival of the 1920s, a figure with whom all scholars were communicating, knew quite a bit about Elizabeth's contributions, which makes sense because this figure was Elizabeth and Herman's granddaughter, Eleanor Melville Metcalf. Wynne Kelly spoke to us about Eleanor's work as a continuation of Elizabeth's. It's well known that she um, promoted his work and preserved his materials and saw herself as the protector of his reputation. We know that also from Eleanor Melville Metcalf's uh, biography of the family, uh, in which she talks about the influence her grandmother had over her and the way her grandmother kind of selected her as the person to forward um, Melville's reputation in the 20th century. We also know from Raymond Weaver's letters and those of um, Lewis Mumford that she um, interacted actively with them. We've already seen that women like Elizabeth were essential contributors to Herman's career during his life and to his reputation after his death. But the example of Eleanor Melville Metcalf makes it clear that women were the agents of transmission for Melville's works and reputation, well after even Elizabeth died in 1906. It would not be going too far to say that women built the infrastructure of Melville studies. While there's no question that subsequent scholars have developed this infrastructure, we're arguing that they hardly invented it. In the decades following 1919, scholars established a narrative that made little room for the women on whose work they were building. But from where we're writing in 2019, it's far easier to prove that women were written out of Melville studies than to explain why. Elizabeth Ranker offers us some context for understanding the limits of early Melville scholarship. At that time, when the Melville revival is getting going, people don't have a lot of information yet. Uh, it's a very different situation than today, where there has been tons and tons and tons of investigation of Melville's life. Um, so it's a very different moment in scholarship. And when you go back and read that stuff, you have to understand that, or you will not understand the evidence you are encountering. I was looking back in the 90s at the accounts of Herman Melville, Elizabeth Shaw Melville, uh, and the Melville family, as they had been produced in the 20th century context of the Melville Revival. Again, taking lessons from historiography, it's really important to realize that you can't read any of those narratives straight. They are all bound up in their own moment, and they are all bound up very, very, this is very crucial, they're all bound up in the history of what we now call the Melville Revival, and you can't separate those from one another. This 20th century construction of Herman and his family was far from neutral, as Ranker observes. When early scholars did notice the Melville women, they usually were painted in unflattering ways, and none more so than Elizabeth. Raymond Weaver described the Melvilles as poorly matched, their marriage as, quote, a crucifixion, unquote. 
Lewis Mumford found Elizabeth's writing, quote, dutiful, girlish, commonplace, inexpressive, and jejune, unquote. Wilson Walker Cowan, in the introduction to his study, Melville's Marginalia, seriously considers Elizabeth as his project's antagonist, a destructive force who, Cowan insists, without any conclusive evidence, erased the marginal notes Herman wrote in his books. Meanwhile, Egbert S. Oliver, in an unpublished manuscript dating from somewhere around the 1950s, backhandedly denigrates Elizabeth and, for good measure, all 19th century women of her class and hometown, with the exaggerated claim that, quote, she had never learned to use her muscles. In fact, no Boston lady of her day had muscles, unquote. Early Melvillians could not seem to determine whether Elizabeth's greatest offense was as a destructive, manipulative usurper or a hapless, corset-bound damsel. It is into this context that scholars like Ranker were trying to intervene in the 1990s. What I was trying to do when my work was first being published um, in 1994 in article form and then in 1996 in my book Strike Through the Mask was to derail what had become the routine recirculation of, first of all, negative accounts of Elizabeth Shaw Melville and the Melville women. Um, but also, and this goes back to, you know, my own arguments about, about the labor of, uh, the Melville women, to show that there were, there were a lot of fundamental flaws, um, not only the problem of being derogatory toward these women, but there were a lot of fundamental flaws in understanding Herman Melville's career that way. Because, um, the women in Melville's life, and we have to remember now, this includes four sisters, Elizabeth Shaw Melville, his wife, his two daughters, all of these women in various ways were absolutely foundational to the production of Melville's writing. As we listen to Ranker in the interview you just heard, we begin to realize that the misogyny of Melville studies was not just aggravating, it was also leading to factual inaccuracies. When women like Elizabeth Melville and Eleanor Melville Metcalf handed off their labors to scholars, Melville's studies came to be dominated by men, rather than women, and moreover by men who didn't seem to value the contributions of the women that they, the scholars, themselves depended on. Our interest in Elizabeth was animated by the possibility that our understanding of Herman's life would become richer as we understood the people who made that life possible. We were realizing, however, that our understanding of Herman's life was, and would remain, woefully incomplete unless we understood their contribution. What at first seemed optional was quickly coming to seem necessary. The question that remained was how to do this work. First, we needed to take the measure of how misogyny shapes literary history more broadly. And from there, we hoped to explore some methods for uprooting it. We talked to scholars exploring new methodologies who helped us think through these questions. One is Natasha Hurley, associate professor at the University of Alberta and author of Circulating Queerness. There's so many ways to think about how misogyny affects the way we do literary history and the, the central role that many women have played as um, editors or kind of consolidators of other people's reputations that seem often to be in the background of the, the central author figure. And if we were to assume that that labor, this is a model of labor, I guess, that the labor that women have done at the scene of literature that 
sometimes as writing and sometimes as adjacent to writing, that if we took that labor seriously, we might actually have a more collaborative model of understanding how literature comes to be or what the conditions of possibility are for uh, literary production, for writing, for the production of the book as an object, for all the seemingly ancillary work that is done to make literature what it is today. And I think that we would have a more robust understanding and, and maybe not even a single author understanding of authorship at all. Hurley's point is philosophical. A dictionary defines an author as a writer, someone who creates with words and takes the credit or gets the blame as the case may be. Authorship is typically individualist and, in the case of literature, usually attached to just one proper name. But this is a convention. There's no rule that requires literary authors to be singular. Some, like Wordsworth and Coleridge, are famously plural. Meanwhile, in other genres, plural authorship is the norm. Think of legal briefs or scientific papers. These are contexts where a collaborative, robust, non-singular understanding of authorship lives comfortably. It's also the case that many scholars of Herman Melville study more than his novels and poems. A range of biographical, historical, and documentary sources for interpreting Melville are widely used in both critical monographs and college classrooms. Scholars who study Melville inevitably study aspects of 19th and 20th century literature and culture, and to the extent that they engage in existing debates, they study the field of Melville studies itself. Meredith Farmer helped us to understand how these kinds of sources are already transforming author studies. We worry constantly um, about the ways that the practices of author societies in general potentially feel out of date. And some of that is actually because of the questions that drive this interview. So if a lot of the work we want to do is to decenter focusing on uh great authors, and specifically great white male authors, then it becomes difficult to justify dedicating a considerable amount of one's time and energy to studying, say, Herman Melville or Nathaniel Hawthorne. More and more, we're primarily interested in broader social, historical, political, and other conditions that have helped prompt an author to think in particular ways. I think author societies have to be willing to not focus on fetishizing just the author, but instead doing exactly the kind of work that all of us are doing, I think, here in this podcast. Yeah, the one other thing I'll add about some of these author societies is that in a lot of ways we are curators and keepers of our own histories, which can be useful not just to people invested in authors, but in people invested in doing some of the uprooting work that I'm seeing here. So at risk of a shameless plug, I'll say that there's a wonderful set of archives that are the Melville Society archives that are available in New Bedford. And we should remember that there are dedicated members of the Melville Society that keep and upkeep all of those records, which are, in fact, one of the very best places to think about these questions about the changing, shifting values that people focus on Melville have had over time. And they're an incredibly rich, just stunning, engaging lens into Melville history. So author societies aren't just a place where people have traditionally propagated the values of one isolated figure. They are also places that then, in many cases, contain, retain, and are able to produce that history in all sorts of interesting ways. We're not 100% sure what an expanded author studies will look like. 
but our research into Elizabeth Melville suggests that these revisions are necessary, and our conversations with several scholars point to the possibility that changes might already be underway. Those changes are part and parcel of changes to literary historical practice. As such, they extend far beyond Melville studies. Indeed, what started out for us as a research project about authors forced us to think about broader scholarly practices in the academy. So, we talked to two experts on the academy. Rachel Burma is an associate professor at Swarthmore College, and Laura Heffernan is an associate professor at the University of North Florida. Together, they've written a history of English as a discipline. In our interview with them, Rachel began by suggesting that the history of practices in the academy can offer insights into the ways that we value scholarly labor. So in our book, The Teaching Archive, we write about a few uh, women literary critics who aren't part of disciplinary historical narratives, but were actually quite important teachers and scholars um, in their fields and in their moments. So Josephine Miles is one of them. Um, Caroline Spurgeon is another. Edith Rickard is another. And um, one of the forms, the erasure of women like Rickard and Spurgeon and Miles has taken is the reimagining of their very uh, of their work as informational work, as kind of tool making work, rather than interpretive and original work. So in the case of Carolyn Spurgeon, who wrote Shakespeare's imagery, who both cataloged all the images, all the metaphors in Shakespeare, and then wrote a long interpretive work about them, even in her time, critics, some critics were saying, oh, you know, it's very useful that she's done this, but already men have come along and made better use of her data than she did herself. And so because these women actually valued work that could be shared and reused, and because they also valued and often assigned credits to their collaborators, their graduate students and undergraduates and librarians and computer programmers in some cases, they in some ways um, accidentally contributed to their writing out of history because they tried to distribute attention for the work that they were collectively doing so widely. The ironic case of women like Spurgeon strangely mirrors that of Elizabeth. Because these women engaged in informational tool-making work, which was, in turn, feminized and devalued, they were also gradually erased from the history they created. Elizabeth wanted to distribute attention onto Herman. She worked to preserve his writings and reputation, and if the scholars who came later were more interested in Herman than Elizabeth, there's no reason to think she'd be sorry to hear it. At the same time, it's possible that scholars could have been interested in Herman and given Elizabeth credit, to give credit, to attribute, to provide citations, to footnote. These are scholarly best practices, and there's no excuse for their absence. Burma and Heffernan's research helps us to see that what's at stake in the omission of Elizabeth is not, however ironically, what Elizabeth valued, but what scholars devalued. We might be tempted to champion Elizabeth in feminist terms, as a long-suffering wife who can finally get her due. But one implication that follows from our consideration of Elizabeth in light of Burma and Heffernan's history of English as a discipline is that even this kind of celebratory narrative risks contributing to the erasure of the labors Elizabeth actually performed. Even our narratives of recovery are sometimes wrong. Here's Laura Heffern. 
I think that, you know, there is also, we were definitely surprised to realize how many women were working in English departments for the first half of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. That fact in and of itself is, is one that, you know, you don't hear very much about. Um, there's instead this kind of narrative that after the late 60s and the early 70s is when women really start getting tenure um, and working in English departments. And, you know, some of the women that we work on, like Spurgeon and, and uh, like Miles and Rickert, did actually have tenure in their departments in the first half of the 20th century. And then there were, of course, many, many more women teaching <clears throat> all kinds of courses in English departments and all kinds of universities for the first half of the 20th century. So um, I think also that, you know, there is this way in which a very particular story about, um, you know, 1970s being a moment of real change for universities, uh, not necessarily a misogynistic story, but just a dominant story has kind of also worked to erase uh, the longer histories of how women have worked in the discipline. Rachel Burma concurs. One of the things Laura and I are trying to do in our work is to say that literary study, more literary study happens in classrooms than in, you know, libraries and famous professors' studies and in the pages of PMLA. And so we need to really have completely new ways of thinking about how we can recover and reanimate and start to think about the way literary study has happened in the classroom. And we think that that goes some significant way towards changing the way we've told the story of our profession, but also towards how we Um, talk about what we really do value and should value about literary study. The solution, in other words, isn't to drop wives into the existing terrain of author studies or women's contributions into our established literary history. The solution is to create new narratives. Adam and I set out to discover the story of Elizabeth Melville, only to learn that it had already been discovered. The reason we didn't know about the contributions of Elizabeth and the women in the Melville family is not because they were not known or knowable. Rather, they had been drowned out by dominant narratives, rooted in the study of literature more broadly, that all of us still have to unlearn. The work of unlearning means rewriting the scripts of literary history, but here too we discovered that others had already begun this work. To imagine the history of Melville studies otherwise, we close with a poem written in Elizabeth's voice by Laurie Robertson Laurent from her collection, The Man Who Lived Among the Cannibals. Lizzie Melville Among the Cannibals, an interlude. Sometimes I feel like a kitten caught in the drapes or a bat upside down under the eaves, wings furled, taking short breaths so no one will notice me. Hanging laundry, I hum shanties I learned at school until I see sails billowing over Boston Harbor and hear the tide turn with a rustle, then a roar. Winter mornings, as I pump icy water into an old bucket, I imagine I am running through the pastures out behind the barn, fleeing the antimacassars and the bric-a-brac gathering dust on the étagère. I return to the kitchen and fill the copper kettle. A few drops sizzle on the iron stove. I measure Herman's coffee carefully. Then the family sails in, Mother Melville in the lead. The oatmeal thickens. After breakfast, I fly upstairs to tidy Herman's room. Then I attend to my own correspondence. Today, my dear stepmother, Hope, inquires, 
what has become of the girl who used to dream of chasing whales and the dashing young sailor who promised to show her the South Seas? I reply, she lives on an island surrounded by cannibals, dearest mother, sewing back the strings her husband rips from his drawers each and every day. This was an episode of the C-19 Podcast. We would like to thank the scholars who shared their ideas with us in interviews, including Rachel Burma, Meredith Farmer, Laura Heffernan, Natasha Hurley, Wynne Kelly, Elizabeth Ranker, and Lori Robertson-Lorand. We'd also like to recognize the important work of Melvillians, Joyce Kennedy, Kathleen Keir, and Amy Elizabeth Puitt, without whom we would not know much about Elizabeth Shaw Melville and the study she made possible. This exit song is a cover of Arthur Russell's A Little Lost, performed by Hannah Judd. This episode of the C-19 Podcast was produced by Rachel Bossio, Adam Fales, and Jordan Alexander-Stein. Thank you for listening to the C-19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at C19Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.